Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, July 23rd, 2021. Happy Friday. And welcome to The Guy Benson Show, coming to you live from Indianapolis, Indiana, the third consecutive show here in Indy. I head out after the show this evening. Glad to have you all here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's the show every single day. And we are also on demand. The podcast is free every day, including weekends. Bonus Benson coming up Saturday and Sunday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can get everything there, ways to listen live, how to get the free podcast. You can go to foxnewspodcast.com as well for that podcast or wherever you might get your free podcast. Plus, there's this. Enjoy many of your favorite original podcasts from Fox News without commercials. That's available now on Apple Podcasts. You can hear from Dana Perino, Brett Baer, Shannon Bream, Trey Gowdy, Martha McCallum, so many people who are Regulars on this program, signature voices for Fox News, subscribers get early access to seasonal series from Fox News Investigates, plus bonus episodes from Fox News Radio's talk shows, including ours. The subscription also includes audio versions of popular Fox News Channel programs and a variety of long-form interviews. It's just $2.99 a month, $29.99 for the year. Over 30 original podcasts from Fox News and talk radio shows, plus all sorts of bonus content. It's ad-free, and that's through Apple Podcasts. On today's show here on the radio program, here's what we've got. Jimmy uh, Jimmy Fallon. That would be interesting. Christine, get on that, host of The Tonight Show. Jimmy Fallon will be with us. Arguably funnier, actually, although I do like Jimmy Fallon. He's my... I'd say my least not favorite of some of the late night guys. He doesn't throw the politics in your face quite as much. But Jimmy Fallon will be here coming up later this hour, our colleague here at Fox News Radio. Who knows where that conversation will go with him? I wonder what his thoughts are on Fallon. I might ask him. Stay tuned. In our next hour, Andy McCarthy will be here, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. Want to pick his brain on a few subjects. Jessica Tarloff. Our left-leaning colleague at Fox News, she will also join the party in the next hour, the middle hour. And in our final hour, we have a lot to get to, including Steve Hayes of The Dispatch, another Fox News contributor. So a Fox-heavy show on a Friday, which is fine. I mean, you you can't really beat that lineup right there. Let me bring you a Fox News alert and the stats. Coronavirus cases, 34.3 million. That's the confirmed official number. We all know it's much higher. The death toll from COVID in the United States, now 610,027. 
The Dow is up 191 points right now. It is north of 35,000. Right now, 35,014. So it's right on the brink there, but Dow 35,000, even just for a bit, is a sight to see. Speaking of sights to see, I'm going to open the show today on a topic that might make you feel like you've entered like a, a time warp. You've gone back in time to 2018 to a red-hot political controversy that consumed our politics and our national debate for days on end. And you might ask, well, why? Why are we doing this? You just read the date, guy. It's Friday, July 23rd, 2021. What's the point of digging into details about something that happened in 2018? And I'll answer the question this way. The subject matter is Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Justice. The second of three nominees that President Trump selected, all of whom are on the court. Part of that 6-3, sometimes 5-4, conservative majority. Gorsuch, my favorite justice, then Kavanaugh, then Justice Barrett. But of those three, the biggest fight and the ugliest display from the opposition, the Democrats, came with Kavanaugh. And if you were even remotely paying any attention to politics a few years back, you remember it. Because it was disgusting. High decibel, high octane, accusations flying, deeply emotional, passions flaring. It was a very significant event in my mind. And it sort of radicalized me. You still might think that I'm sort of a, you know, friendly type of fellow. I'm not that hardcore partisan. I don't like to get angry and pound the table and all that stuff. And that's, that's all true. I will say that the Kavanaugh hearings were radicalizing to me in the sense that on certain things, I recognized truly how dirty the Democrats are willing to play and how little actual facts or evidence or information can mean, how little it can matter to certain people when they have an agenda, and it was extremely disturbing to me. And it was something about which I was very passionate, talked a lot about it, wrote a lot about it. So why bring it up again now? Well, because I'm not the one doing it. There are figures on the left who are insisting on once again relitigating the Kavanaugh matter, are demanding more investigations. They cannot let it go. And their misrepresentations... Their demagoguery, and yes, their outright lies, are being resurrected. And here's my approach to this. This is why I'm devoting the opening of this show, three years on, to this issue. Not only is it a man's reputation at stake, and I think by extension, reputation of the Supreme Court, this is part of what they're trying to do, by the way, is delegitimize conservative decisions that come down that Kavanaugh is a part of. They're trying to sort of shape the battlefield through these tactics. But so long as partisans who don't want to tell the truth and in fact want an alternate reality to take root, so long as they will pursue those lies and those misrepresentations, every time they do it, 
especially on this, which is clearly a burr under my saddle, every time they try, I'm going to fight back. Every time they say, hey, this didn't happen or this happened and this guy is still credibly accused or whatever, if they're not going to let it go, I'm not going to let it go. Because there might be a mentality of just, oh, well, guy, you know, get over it. You won. Your side won. Kavanaugh's on the court. Relax. I understand that. And he deserves to be on the court. But if you let a lie fester and go unchallenged, people who may not remember it very well, we have short memories, people who may not have paid attention at the time, you can start to, by kind of osmosis, get this more deeply embedded into the American psyche as maybe something that's true. Right? That, I think, is part of their goal. And if, through neglect, conservatives don't push back with the facts, which are on our side, it makes this whole cynical project easier for the left. And I will not be a part of that. And so let's just dive in here. I've written about this at townhall.com today. If you want me to show my work, if you want citations for my assertions that I'm going to make, you can go to my townhall.com piece. And I hyperlink to everything This is something about which I know a lot and about which I wrote a lot. So Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, we sometimes call him Senator White Club. Remember, he belonged to multiple all-white clubs for many years, promised when pressured, first running for Senate in 2006, confronted with this, hey, you're in this all-white club, that's weird. He said he was going to quit. He didn't. In fact, he deepened his relationship, personal and financial with at least one of these all-white clubs. He was challenged again about it 11 years later, made some excuses, said he was going to work on it, and here we are in 2021, and he's still a member of this all-white club. This is the guy who has the audacity to sit in judgment with conspiracy theories about other people. So Senator Whitehouse is reacting to a letter from Christine Blasey Ford, right? She was one of the Kavanaugh accusers, the only one that I think was even remotely potentially credible. There were four. Three of them are not credible at all, including that insane Julie Swetnick gang rape thing. Remember that? You probably do. All the Senate Democrats and the Judiciary Committee used the Swetnick gang rape allegation to demand a Kavanaugh withdraw. And that Trump pulled down that nomination. Chuck Schumer signed that letter, too, based on an absolute crazy debunked lie. Pushed by the lawyer in that case, if you recall, Michael Avenatti, who's now going to prison. Anyway, Blasey Ford's lawyers say that the FBI didn't do enough to investigate this sexual assault allegation. Now, here's the thing. The FBI did six background checks on Brett Kavanaugh, throughout his career, six of them. They turned up nothing. Then this allegation comes out decades later. There's no corroboration whatsoever. Blasey Ford names witnesses who were supposedly at this party. The FBI actually did, in this short extra review that they did, talk to these witnesses. None of them supported her story. None of them. 
To this day, there is not even a shred of evidence that Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford ever even met. We have much more evidence that Sheldon White Club White House is a racist and a liar belonging to all white clubs and lying about what he was going to do about it, withdrawing and that sort of thing, reform. We have actual evidence of that. Zero evidence that Kavanaugh and Ford met. So in this letter that they've written, that, of course, White House is glomming onto and amplifying, Christy Blasey Ford's lawyers say that the FBI investigation was a sham. Quote, not only did the FBI refuse to interview Dr. Ford or the corroborators, it failed to act on over 4,500 tips it received about then-nominee Kavanaugh. So this is like the tip line. Let's start with that. There were all sorts of insane tips that came in about Brett Kavanaugh because there was political blood in the water. People made stuff up about him. Sheldon Whitehouse himself actually forwarded on an accusation that Brett Kavanaugh had raped a woman on a yacht in Rhode Island. And then it was definitively proven that it wasn't true. The woman admitted to lying. Kavanaugh had never been ever to that place in Rhode Island. It was a lie. So these things came in all over the place. There were tons of tips. What you need is credible accusations, of which there were arguably one. I actually spent some time, and you can read my piece today, dissecting and debunking four of them, because people just came out of the woodwork on behalf of others. There was one woman who said, I think I remember something at Yale, but I had to call my classmates to see if they even remembered. I'm not sure it was him. They're trying to crowdsource some memory about a weird thing that happened at a party. No corroboration of that either. This, you remember if you lived through this. It was a feeding frenzy. And here you have Blasey Ford's lawyers saying that the FBI, trying to put this on the FBI, after their six background checks, and then also this extra investigation that they did, where they interviewed people, they didn't interview Dr. Ford or the corroborators. There are no corroborators. There are no corroborators. There is not a single scintilla of corroborating evidence about any of this. None. Zero. There were no corroborators for the FBI to interview. They did interview the supposed witnesses, and none of them backed up Ford's story. As a matter of fact, and I will make sure that you remember this, and I'm going to underline this in dark marker three times, the only new piece of information that came out from the FBI review was that the number one star witness named by Ford was her friend, Leland Kaiser, her friend, her ally, who said initially that she believed her friend but didn't remember the party, couldn't corroborate the story. Leland Kaiser, that friend, told the FBI that during this controversy, Blasey Ford's allies pressured and bullied her to change her story to hurt Kavanaugh. This is witness tampering. They were bullying and threatening and pressuring her to change her story and tell something other than the truth as she remembered it. And Leland Kaiser told this to the FBI. That is the only new piece of information, and it buttresses Kavanaugh and hurts Ford and her camp. And by the way, after that whole episode played out and the way that she was treated, Leland Kaiser told New York Times reporters that 
in retrospect, knowing everything that she knows and going through everything that she saw, she no longer believes Ford's story at all. She says it doesn't make any sense, and she has no confidence in it. That is Ford's own friend and top witness. Doesn't believe her, just like Ford's own father doesn't believe her. Zero evidence, none. They're going to keep smearing this man. They're trying to influence his jurisprudence, obviously. They're going to pretend like there was something nefarious afoot. There was immense scrutiny. And zero evidence emerged. None. To corroborate this story. And they can pretend otherwise. They can lie to you. They can try to rewrite history, but that's not going to happen here. Because the facts which matter, the evidence which matters, and the lack thereof tells a different story. And as long as, the, as long as they keep pursuing this lie and beating this drum, if it takes decades, I'm going to keep fighting it. I've got a break. What a start. A big fight about something that happened three years ago. Hey, this is their fight. I'm going to fight back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I don't know if it's buffed or boofed. How do you pronounce that? That refers to flatulence. We were 16. Okay. Back on The Guy Benson Show. One of my favorite sound bites from those hearings looking back since we opened the show with this uh, once again regenerated, rebooted lie about now Justice Kavanaugh. And that was Senator Whitehouse interrogating Brett Kavanaugh about such crucial issues as farting and drinking games. Absolute clown show. He was also pretty awful to Amy Coney Barrett as well. Couldn't, you know, couldn't put a finger on her. Couldn't touch her because she was so good. But he tried. He came after her with all his conspiracy theories about this network of dark money. He's, of course, a huge dark money hypocrite. I can't help but wonder if he was opposed to Justice Barrett because she and her husband adopted two children from Haiti. Children that apparently would not be allowed into Senator White Club's Yacht Club, which is all white. I don't know. There's more evidence that the man's a racist than there is that Brett Kavanaugh did any of these things. Does it still bother me? Yes. But we get to tell the truth on this platform, and we do. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. GuyBensonShow.com Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. 
Joining me now from our New York headquarters in studio is Jimmy Fela, host of Fox Across America, Fox News Radio, Monday through Friday, noon to three, right before this show. And Jimmy, it's good to have you back at the very top of the show today. I was teasing the guests. I go through the list and who hears who's coming up and you can look forward to these guests. And I briefly stumbled over my words, and I called you Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> and so there might be some disappointed people right now. There's a little bit of a ratings bounce going on. You want to laugh about that guy? In uh, doing stand-up comedy in and around the city, the funniest thing in the world is from time to time when an MC will do that, because uh, it's so noticeable by the level of ovation I get as I'm walking out onto the stage, and then I get out from behind the curtain, and there is a precipitous drop in enthusiasm. There's, in fact, some groaning and booze. Yes. Yeah, so this, Aww. so in, enduring this on the radio is nothing. Believe me, this is this is easy stuff. We're shooting do blanks you think- here. Do you think you're funnier than Fallon? Oh yeah, not even close. Like I'm cuz I'm like a jokey punchline guy. I'm not even being arrogant. He's like uh, you know, like a jazzercise guy. Jumps around, sings and dances, stuff like that. But if you He's put, good. I mean, he's he's talented, for he's sure. Profoundly talented. Uh, he's like he is like a Dean Martin, but he can't drop jokes. Like Dean Martin could actually do jokes. He had like he had like chops, you know. Um Fallon is he's like a character actor and he's cute. Um I I will say this though. I don't think I could outdrink Jimmy Fallon. On any level, which is, which is saying something. Yeah, no, it, no, believe me, Jimmy. No, he's got he's got chops, man. I'm I drink out of a cup. He drinks out of a funnel. It's a different ball game. Jazzercise. I wasn't. I didn't have that one on the bingo card here for the Friday show. <laughs> uh, but you know, there you have it. And the other thing about Fallon, uh-huh. and I, I like him. I think he's just like a likable person. Yeah. He and this goes also back to his SNL days. He laughs too much at his own jokes. He does. He has. He laughs at. He sort of like snickers at his own jokes, and he also could never keep his s together during sketches. Like whenever he was in a funny sketch, he he's the first guy to crack, which is kind of endearing in some ways. But if it happens too often, it starts to feel. A little crutchy. Listen, all you're really trying to tell all the kids at home is don't do cocaine. That's all you're really trying to say here. Because that's all that was. <laughs> those SNL guys, you, you can't imagine. Like, I've hung out at all those after parties. I know everybody who writes for the show. Uh, they're playing real loose ball across 6th Avenue, guy. It's a mess over there. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, it was, uh, you, you hear things. You hear some things occasionally, certainly back in the 70s, but... In any case, let's <laughs> let's move on. Um, so, Jimmy, I, we're gonna we're gonna talk to a number of our guests about this today because we had a home stretch yesterday, a little dispute here at the show mm-hmm. about the counting of states that one has been to, and I, this came up because I'm going to Idaho later this evening, mm-hmm. and Idaho will be state number 48 Ooh. for me under the way that I count. Oh, boy. Visiting I, I gotta, states. Yeah, I got to hear this. Go ahead. Based on the way that Christine counts, this would be my 49th state because she has a different system. And then based on, for example, Quiet Wyatt's mm-hmm. you know, thresholds and his framework for all of this, I would be probably somewhere in, in the 30s. Okay. So when you were to – like let's say someone came to you and said, Jimmy, how many states have you been to? How would you tabulate that? 
based on places I've actually departed the airport and spent local time. I don't count it by places I've like had a connecting flight in because I actually haven't been to the state because the airport is never reflective of the state. There's a very homogenous tone and tenor to the airport experience no matter where you go. You know, aside from like legal sport, uh, excuse me, regional sports merchandise that's for sale. So getting out beyond the airport and spending a calculable amount of time is how I would qualify it. What about driving through a state on highways? Um, it technically counts. Like if you pulled over, you were there. You saw the landscape. You were a part of the experience. What, I if, what if you didn't pull over? What if you just blew right through, but you, you were physically I there? mean, you were there. You were on the ground. You were out in free society. No, I actually, I count that. I, I count that. I know. Free, I, so is the thing, is yeah. the TSA security, if you're behind <laughs> TSA security, you're not in free society, so you haven't been? Thank is you. Is TSA your line of demarcation? That's actually... Very interesting. I had not thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. You, if you have the latitude to move personally at your own whims, then yes, uh, that that I count as being a part of an actual state, experiencing it on some level. Um, I, yeah, the, the the connection thing, no. And the driving through and not stopping thing, I know it sounds like a gray area, but you're there. You get a feel for how they drove. You see the landscape. I got to give them that one. It's like a neighborhood play. You know, in Major League Baseball, your foot doesn't have to touch the bag to turn a double play. You know, you're in the neighborhood. I'll give it to you. Okay. All right. Yeah. My thing My thing is you have to have done something of substance, and, and that could also include a meal. Okay. But like something of some degree of significance. All right. If, if, it it's, a, to be- if it's a, of significance, I can technically say I'm not on the radio in any states. <laughs> if it has to be substantive, then yeah, I got to walk that back. Go ahead. <laughs> you're, you're technically, theoretically on the radio. Uh, so one of the places upcoming in my travels, mm-hmm. and I've been here before, so this will not be adding to my list. I'm going back to Texas. I'm going to Austin next week, Ooh. and I'm doing an event there, and I just saw earlier today that Austin is once again reimposing at least strong guidance oh, under sorry. which vaccinated people are urged to wear masks. And I just wonder how you would react to this, because my, and I tweeted it, I just like very knee-jerk, I go... No, like unless I am absolutely required, like I will be on the airplane today, mm-hmm. to wear a mask, I don't care what the guidance is. I don't care what I'm urged to do. I'm fully vaccinated. I believe that the vaccines work because I believe in science. I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I, I, I just had a very visceral, angry reaction to this, <laughs> even about an upcoming trip. I'm, I'm tired of this stuff. No, I'm first of all, nobody goes to Austin because they care about their health. You know the whole, <laughs> the, the, the whole hook of Austin like 6th Street is that you've pulled the goalie. Okay, you're just nobody's playing any defense. You're in Austin. You're trying to cheat death for as many days as you're there. So I think it's antithetical to the whole experience. But, yeah, we shouldn't be putting it back on. I mean, if you just wanted to talk from the standpoint of like the have it both ways mentality of what's happening right now, which is, hey, you need to take the vaccine. But in the next breath, hey, we're not acting that confident in the vaccine. You know, if you're trying to incentivize injections, inoculations, I would I would think that you would keep your end of the bargain, which is that getting vaccinated allowed you to get well, that's your the life thing. back. Like, I'm, I am very proudly and profoundly not an anti-vaxxer, mm-hmm. and I have the vax, mm-hmm. so I'm not putting on no, my mask. No. I, like, I'm not going to. No, I, I agree with you on a multitude of levels, but selfishly because I want to see you take a perp walk on the news. 
It would be my a Guy Benson perp walk because you got arrested for not wearing a mask. Because it would be funny if, if it happened to you. If it happened to most people, it's not funny. But if it happened to you, the, the, the guy who's least likely to take a perp walk in life, I think, of all the people I know, if they were like um, superlatives here at Fox News, you would win least likely to take a perp walk. Well, here's a question. Uh-huh. Would I for the for the mugshot? Would I have to have a mask? <laughs> That's funny because that that mugshot I would be beaming. That would that mugshot would earn me so much like populist conservative credibility. <laughs> it would last at least a month or two. Yeah, you firebrand guy Benson. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for resisting arrest after declining to wear a mask as a fully vaccinated person. Uh, I don't again, I don't think it's the law. They're not enforcing it as the law, but it's, uh-huh. you know, the experts are urging again. And that's their stage, whatever guidance in Austin, Texas. Oh, now, to get to Austin, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I've got a few flights ahead of me tonight. Mm-hmm. I've got another flight late next week. I did notice, Jimmy, mm-hmm. got a few minutes left here. You have a new column out oh, yeah. foxnews.com that actually gives a little some rules of the road, although I guess rules of the skies mm-hmm. from your perspective about how to have a successful air travel experience in an era of a lot of unruly passengers. There's been a huge uptick Mm -hmm. in unruly passenger incidents, and you're offering some tips and some advice on how to avoid that whole mess. Do you want to maybe highlight one or two that you think I really need to internalize and embrace? (laughs) Uh, Well, let me ask you this. Are you an overhead storage bin hog? Because that's something I wrote about extensively, is nobody monitors the overhead storage rule of, you know, one carry-on, one personal item. And in my flight to L.A. last week and this Frontier Airlines video that's gone viral, everyone's fighting over the bins because what happens is what? You board 10 rows of the plane, but somehow 21 rows of the luggage bins are full. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you that guy? Well, I'm a 1K on United, so I do board first. So I I just have the luxury of as much much space as I could possibly use. This is my game plan. Uh So I actually technically have three pieces. Mm -hmm. I have my luggage that goes in the overhead bin. Mm -hmm. I've got my computer bag. It goes in the seat in front of me. Mm -hmm. And then I have a garment bag that I hang in the little flight attendant closet. That's... Mm -hmm. That's my setup, and I think that's completely legit. Well, for me, obviously, Fox makes me fly stowaway. So I do have the room if I can hold on to it while I'm gripping the tire of the plane. Uh, it's just it's, it's, it's very it can be logistically challenging at certain altitudes. And, and of course, the cold is a problem. But no, in general, you seem like you're within your within your rights then. Uh, and you yeah, don't it's a single bag. It's yeah. a single bag up there. No, that's that's respectable. The, the okay. biggest the biggest causes of confrontation on planes, though, storage, maybe it's not specific to your experience. It doesn't sound like it's that egregious. Um, but otherwise, like looking around the plane, it has a lot of it just has to do with the fact that by the time everyone gets on the plane, we've all become like Michael Douglas in the movie Falling Down. Everybody's already on the verge of snapping before they get there. And this is something I was talking about with Harris Faulkner the other day that didn't really fit into the column that everyone should read. It's at foxnews.com. And remember this. If you like reading at a third grade level, you really will love all of my columns. But the conversation Harris and I were having is about they That's need to generous. bring— they need, <laughs> Good for you. They, <laughs> they need to— they need to bring back alcohol sales on planes. And my theory being, Guy, 
is that it used to be people got onto the planes, they drank, and by the time you arrived at the destination, you had some drunk people. But now, because alcohol is banned, everyone pregames like they're going into a college football stadium, <laughs> and they're, they're fourth quarter drunk before the national right. anthem gets sung. It's prom. Yeah. It's prom without a DJ <laughs> it's, it's, you know, in a flying metal tube. That's a lot less exciting. Yes, and make, but, but they're not dressed for prom, okay? They're, they're no, trimming they're, their toenails. And, they, and they've got masks. You've yeah. got masks on, too. That's another fun thing. Thank you. Well, hopefully this ends with you wearing handcuffs for my own selfish indulgence. I That's want you so to be a mask vigilante for me, guy. <laughs> so Okay, so you've got the overhead bin rule. You've got uh, the, the, the booze idea, which wasn't in the column, but I actually fully support that. Uh, anything else? Well, like, if you're how, do you, how do you deal with these irritable, angry people? Well, you have to understand they're not mad at you. They're mad at life. Like, they're mad at circumstance. <laughs> it's like when I used to, like, drive a taxi, people would jump into my cab and just annihilate me before they had even given me a destination. And I was like, oh, this clearly has nothing to do with me. I understand. Like, somebody's coming from a bad interaction with a boss. This is a weird projection. And that's a lot of what's happening on planes, too, is circumstance has just broken people's spirits. Because when you fly commercial, man, it really is like a thinly veiled way of going to the dominatrix. You know, you get called names. They treat you terribly. You pay a lot of money for the experience. And uh, I think a lot of people who are flying commercial didn't want to go to a dominatrix and wound up at one. Like, I think they should go the full mile and put out cigarettes on us, too, if we're not flying first class or 1K or whatever the hell you're doing these days. Yeah, I mean, it, it is wonderful. Um, <laughs> I, I would be like the guy who would wave to you, although you're not even in coach. You said you're down in... You're down in storage. Yeah, yeah. I'm... You're down as a stowaway, and then all of a sudden, the like people are you know ringing the flight attendant button. They're like, "We hear something from down below. It sounds like a bunch of hack jokes. What's happening down there?" And they announce, "Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have an in-flight emergency. There's a, a stowaway. There's a person who's freezing down below. In fact, it is." famous comedian Jimmy Fallon and everyone's like, ooh and then they, then they bring you up you know through the secret staircase or whatever and then you know the the anger boils over into full blown mutiny when they realize it's you <laughs> this is what i'm anticipating yeah well and by the way the, the last thing that i'm going to point mm -hmm. out from your column mm -hmm. If someone is asleep on an airplane, do not wake them under any circumstances unless, like, there's a full-blown, we-might-die emergency. Like, let them sleep. I'm a, I'm a plane sleeper. I'm good at it. In fact, on my flight out here, I had not gotten much sleep, and it was a nonstop to Indi – I'm in Indianapolis. Yeah. And right before we landed, I woke up, and I just sort of, like, oh, I, like, jerked awake. Mm -hmm. And I was so disgustingly asleep that I had drooled into my mask. Another reason <laughs> – why I hate wearing masks. It was a, it was a total embarrassment. We've got to leave it there. Jimmy Fela, mm -hmm. and say that very carefully, Jimmy Fela, our colleague at Fox News Radio. Appreciate it, sir. Have a great weekend. Great hang, buddy. You too. Be good. All right. We'll be right back. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday, some baseball news. The Cleveland Indians have officially changed their name. They are not the Cleveland Indians anymore. They will be... The Cleveland Guardians. 
I mean, we're mid-season here, so I don't think they're going to change mid-season. But they will become the Cleveland Guardians. They put out a video narrated by Tom Hanks. And they had the big reveal, the Guardians. Uh, They're not getting a lot of plaudits on social media, at least. I was like, what is that name? What, What is that? I guess it turns out that there are the Cleveland Guardians that are chiseled into a famous bridge or something in the city. So I guess there's a local connection there. So I guess that's fine. I wonder how Cleveland residents feel about this. I just don't know if it was remotely close to necessary to change the name. I know that it's supposed to be offensive. We're having a moral panic about anything related to identity. It's like, okay, well, this is offensive, that's offensive, so the Indians have to go. They got rid of Chief Wahoo a while back. You could say that was too stereotypical. The image of him was offensive. But now just like the whole name of the team gone. It's got to be pretty jarring to be a longtime fan of a sports team which just out of nowhere throws out their entire history basically and rebrands with a brand new name for political reasons. It's just odd. I will say, while I find it ridiculous that they called themselves the Washington football team and they still haven't announced their new nickname, the Redskins, that was a bit much. Right? On the scale of offense, that would be towards the end. I know that's a very scientific thing that I just did. Cleveland Indians? Ah. I mean, I guess I'm not the person with the moral authority to declare whether something's offensive. I would imagine that Native Americans, as is often the case with these things, are split. Does this rise to the level of necessary? And what comes next? Golden State Warriors, I think they might be on the chopping block. Do the Chicago Blackhawks? NHL, that's a tribe. What happens there? I know there have been battles over the Seminoles before, the Atlanta Braves. I cannot imagine the Braves changing their name anytime soon. But who knows what Major League Baseball might inflict on them yet again, having robbed them unjustly based on BS of the All-Star Game this year. So on the scale of mad about this, 1 to 10, I'm like, I don't know, a a (laughs) 3.5 about the Cleveland Indians changing their name to the Guardians. I think if I were a Cleveland fan, I might be more mad about it. I looked at some of their logos, like the new swag. Some of it's okay. Some of it looks kind of like like you would see at perhaps a minor league team. Not quite up to snuff, in my view. Next hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Andy McCarthy joins me after this break. Stay tuned. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. From Indianapolis, Indiana, it's the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Glad to have you here, and happy Friday. My favorite day of the week, personally speaking. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free. If you can't catch us live, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, 
That podcast is a big option, especially for the young people, the youths, here in the Guy Benson Show audience. On demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or the many places that you may download your podcasts. Joining me now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple books, most recently Ball of Collusion. He is at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. And Andy, it's good to have you back. Guy, always a pleasure. Before we get to more serious matters, I wonder if you and I are on the same page where, I'll just speak for myself, I breathed a sigh of relief when I saw that the hapless commissioner of Major League Baseball, uh, for whom I do not harbor a tremendous amount of respect or goodwill, but he at least came out in the last week or so and announced that it is unlikely that Major League Baseball will continue in the future with this extra inning man-on-second-base gimmick, and they will get rid of and jettison the seven-inning doubleheader games. Those were both COVID-related. They said I was worried that they were going to institutionalize those things forever. I guess I'm more of a traditionalist when it comes to baseball, and I don't like some of the efforts to remake the game. Are you with me on this, or am I being a stickler and sort of old and stodgy? Totally with you. I even like the uh, designated header. You know, I would I, I think the American League go back to that, and I think I'm I'm probably swimming against the tide on that one. I do think, guy, that they ought to. Um, I mean, there's some obvious things. My my son plays a lot of baseball, so you know you see this day to day, and there are things they can do to move the game along, um, like not let the batter leave the batter's box and make the pitcher you know deliver the pitch in, within a reasonable period of time um but and they do have to do something along those lines because these games being you know three and a half four hours long is just ridiculous but i'm with you i'd go back to all the old uh those aren't the old rules that's baseball i mean the stuff yeah that they've done that's the, the game couple of years is, is not baseball yeah it's not baseball and i feel like a lot of the nuances and art of the game are becoming lost with you know all the advanced statistics and the obsession on that and the huge shifts and it's like you know feast or famine home runs or strikeouts a lot of the little things that make the game delightful and exciting are getting sort of rubbed out but that's a whole separate story and now i am sounding more like a curmudgeon andy let's talk about politics and let's talk about you've written a column on the january 6th special committee that speaker pelosi has put together just so you know and If the audience has missed it, I don't think they'll be surprised, and I'm sure that there are many dissenters in the audience. I thought that January 6th was an absolute national disgrace. I think that it was caused heavily by misinformation coming from many people, including the President of the United States, repeatedly. I was horrified by what happened, even though I have not gotten into the totally over-the-top hyperbole comparing it to 9-11 or anything like that. It was still a very disgraceful thing that shouldn't have happened, built on a lie, and could have gotten much uglier. Fortunately, it did not. That's where I come from on this. For those reasons, I was in favor of the bipartisan commission, truly bipartisan, negotiated by both parties, signed on to by some Republicans. Dozens of them voted in favor of it, but the Republicans in Congress ended up quashing it in the Senate, which brought us now to the Democrats' version of this, run by Pelosi, and of course we've all seen what happened this week, where Leader McCarthy gave his five names for the Republicans who would be involved, and Pelosi rejected two of them, Jim Jordan, Jim Banks, 
And so then McCarthy said, well, if that's the game you're going to play, we're not participating at all because this is a partisan sham, which is what the Republicans wanted to argue about this no matter what. It's why they killed, in my view, the bipartisan commission. But I think Pelosi, and I said this was a mistake on her part, she made it very easy for the Republicans to, in a much more credible way, make the argument that this is now a partisan sham through this veto of two of the five Republican members. That is where I come from on this issue. Where do you come from on it, and what do you make of sort of uh, these these gymnastics and then the spat back and forth over the last few days? Well, I was against the commission guy because I think Congress, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of tired of our new idea of um, representative democracy being that we elect uh, people to Congress so that they can go on television and tell everyone how bad everything is while they delegate all their authorities to commissions and courts and bureaucracies. I think that's what we have Congress for. Um, I don't have fond memories, as some people do, of the 9-11 Commission. I think that was a spectacle. And I also thought that the reason Pelosi wanted to have a commission was to continue the Democrats' political narrative, uh, comparing what I agree with you is a disgraceful uh, event in American history, the Capitol riot, with 9-11, which it simply wasn't. So I was not in favor of the commission. I also think that an attack on Congress, on Congress's own turf, I mean, if this happened under other circumstances, it would be appropriate to Congre- for Congress to investigate. I can't think of anything that would be more appropriate and more legitimate for Congress to investigate. You can't get rid of politics in politics. So they are going to obviously politicize um, things that they should legitimately be investigating. That's the, that's the way things go. We're all supposed to be adults and try to strain out the uh, hyperbole and listen to the arguments of both sides and figure out what the truth is. That's what, we, that's what our system generally does. So I think this is a comedy of errors from the beginning. It, to me, it's a terrible mistake strategically on the Republicans' part to put people on a legitimate committee who will see their jobs as defending the indefensible, which is President Trump's activities in that two-month period leading up to January 6th. I don't see when the Republicans should be moving on to the Biden agenda and why it's awful for the country to continue to litigate the 2020 election makes no sense to me. On the other hand, McCarthy has the right to be wrong. He's got the right to make a mistake. And I don't think Pelosi had any business mixing the people that he wanted to put on the committee. And I well, think I think she gave him a right. gift. This was the point that I made on yeah, a special I, report yeah, the other night. I think it was I'm a gift to McCarthy. Yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with that. I mean, part of the reason the Democrats want to do this is – the Trump dynamic is very hard for the Republicans to navigate because of the exuberance of, of his base. But that said, I don't think it made any sense to McCarthy that, to troop up to Bedminster in New Jersey to consult with Trump about the committee and then name Jordan and Banks to it. I mean, that just looks awful. Um, Pelosi puts Liz Cheney in a terrible position by doing this. Um, and I, I think she's essentially surrendered any hope that half the country would accept this as a legitimate exercise, and it ought to be a legitimate exercise. I saw that Byron York has a Twitter thread out. Britt Hume brought it to my attention on Twitter, 
And Byron is noting that the chairperson of this Pelosi committee, and just to be clear, I've already said what I've said about January 6th, about the commission, right? So I'm not some Trump hack who loves whataboutism and just deflecting away from the real issue. But Byron makes some, I think, relevant and interesting points about the chairman of this committee, Benny Thompson, who, for example, objected to electoral votes under George W. Bush based on nothing, conspiracy theories. He boycotted President Trump's inaugural based on the proposition that he was an illegitimate president. He and, of course, Adam Schiff, who's a member of this committee, sold, and Schiff especially responsible for this, the Russia collusion lie and clung to it even after the Mueller report. I mean, if, if Pelosi is objecting to hardcore partisans based on you know various sins that she perceives that they've committed, and I would not defend some of what Jordan and Banks and others have done, and I haven't defended it, but it's hard to then look at a Benny Thompson-run committee, given his behavior and rhetoric in previous election cycles, where he did a lot of really bad democracy-undermining things when his side didn't win, it's hard to look at that and say, oh, yes, this is going to be good and a thoughtful endeavor, and it's going to be all above board. And that's not to throw shade at any of the other people who might be on it, but you know, these things, optics, facts, histories, this stuff does matter when shaping public opinion and perceptions of something like this. Yeah, I would add to that, Guy, to, um, uh, to Byron's observations that Jamie Raskin, who was also on the committee and was the prosecutor in the second uh, Trump impeachment, voted against counting or, or pushed not to have electoral votes counted for Trump in 2016. Yeah, uh, and, was ta- and he was also talking you know, just uh, – that reminds me, Andy, he, he also, Jamie Raskin, told a cheering crowd before Trump was even inaugurated that they were going to impeach him. Before they even had the impeachable offense, he just, you know, was whipping up the crowd and pushing impeachment before the guy even took office. I mean, these are not exactly, you know, clear-eyed, sober-minded, rank-and-file members. These people have their own serious baggage. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, guy. since what Pelosi is saying is that the people she has picked can be trusted to do sober fact-finding, and for some reason she says Jordan and, and Banks can't, that, uh, you know, Russiagate is something that I happened to look at very closely uh, while it was going on, wrote a book about it and all that jazz. Um, you know, Adam Schiff, we found out when the transcripts were released from his committee hearings that he was making public statements that were very strongly indicative of this idea that there was very strong evidence of collusion between Trump and Russia. And then when you got the hearing transcripts that he presided over, um, they basically blew up what he was saying publicly. So, you know, look, I would not have said, notwithstanding all of that, that Raskin and Schiff and Thompson and whoever else Pelosi wanted to put on this, that she couldn't put them on. They're members of Congress. And the way that we sort all this stuff out is, they make their case. The other guys make their case, and we try to figure out where, where the truth is. But to suggest that it's perfectly fine to have those people, but somehow Jordan and Banks are disqualified is preposterous. Yeah, that I agree with you on that. I, I just, yeah, I just don't, um, you know, I guess this goes back to what uh, we could almost connect our baseball conversation 
uh, <laughs> in this sense. You know, you have an opportunity to put on a game, and it's a p- completely legitimate. If you want to botch it up by, like, having seven-inning games and, you know, putting a pretend runner on second base, um, no one's going to say that you didn't have a legitimate chance here, but you screwed it up by the way you implemented it, and people are going to look at it and say that's not baseball. And I think here, this is something that Congress should look into, and it's a totally legitimate hearing. But if McCarthy and Pelosi want to screw it up by the way they yeah. implement it, and by the way they, you know, in a very heavy-handed way, either they put the wrong people on who have the wrong agendas, or they say we can have our people but you can't have your people, people are just going to throw up their hands and say this isn't legitimate. And then something that ought to be done won't be done or at least won't be done right. And it's just such a self-inflicted wound, I think, by Pelosi because McCarthy was in a very tough spot. He really doesn't want Republicans participating in this at all for a number of reasons. I think he doesn't want to get called as a witness because – he reportedly spoke to Trump and asked him to call for a stand down during the whole melee. I think he's not excited about any of this. And then like manna from heaven, Nancy Pelosi decides, it's like, okay, I see your awkward situation and mistakes. And I raise you another mistake by saying, well, I'm going to mess around with your panel of five by vetoing some people to make parts of my base happy. And that's like the easiest turnkey excuse in the world, not only for McCarthy to say, okay, you're playing politics, it's an abuse of power, we're taking our ball and going home because we shall not participate in such a charade, right? So that's like a no-brainer at that point for him to do that because Pelosi basically gave him the permission slip to do it. And then I was, gonna, I was not looking forward to being in the position of Republicans saying over and over again, this commission is partisan, or this select committee is partisan because it's all run by Pelosi, and it's not bipartisan, and it's it's a sham. And I would have to point out, well, it's, you could have had a much more balanced bipartisan commission. You chose not to do that. The vast majority of Republicans oppose that. So that's a little cynical. But then when Pelosi goes and does this, it makes the argument for them about the credibility of the whole thing. And so we have another legitimacy spat and another legitimacy crisis in our politics. And I laugh because it's sad, but here we are. Andy, we've got to leave it there for now. Appreciate the conversation. Andy McCarthy is a Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney, and his latest book is Ball of Collusion. Andy, we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Guy. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson, back on the Guy Benson Show. Well, there was another shooting in Washington, D.C., this time near a very popular French restaurant called Le Diplomat, where I actually once brought Cookie, producer Christine. We had a meal there when she was down in D.C. Hot spot. In fact, President Biden was there not that long ago with the First Lady. And you could see people running and ducking as shots rang out. Crime in D.C. and many other major cities and metro areas are on the rise. Shootings, murders, uh, it's bad. And you have police who are, no pun intended, gun-shy, 
who aren't doing their jobs as aggressively because of so much of the rhetoric and demonization. I'm all for police reform and accountability, but we have overcorrected. And the results have been absolutely tragic and unacceptable. And you have a lot of Democrats calling to defund the police. Either abolish the police, take money away from the police, redirect police funds to other purposes. We've talked about this over and over again. The White House wants to say, oh, no, we're not for defunding the police. We never said we were for defunding the police. But Biden did say that he was in favor of redirecting funds, which is, according to defund the police, that whole movement, one of the definitions of this whole proposition. And it's certainly what the Democrats, in many cases, especially out there on the left, have been demanding and calling for for the better part of two years. So President Biden was asked about this by a reporter, and his answer was really something. Cut 13. Are there people who, in the Democratic Party, are there people in the Republican Party who think we're sucking the blood out of kids? I, I, I'm not sure. Are there people in the Democratic Party who want to support the president? I'm not sure how well you could hear that, but she asked about defunding the police. He said, we're not for defunding the police. We're against that. And then she followed up with, of course, the obvious question. Aren't there people in the Democratic Party who are your people calling to defund the police? And President Biden responded, aren't there Republicans who say that we're sucking the blood out of kids or something? What? Honestly, what the hell is he even talking about? It's a completely legitimate question and a very, very strange answer. Remember, this is not normal. We heard that a lot during the Trump administration. That was not a normal response from the president. Blood-sucking kids, what? Okay, Joe, take a nap. It's the Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. As we continue on this Friday, halfway through the show, very glad to have you here. Chugging toward the weekend together. And our next guest is Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, chief romance correspondent here at The Guy Benson Show. And Jesse, good to have you back. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. Are you satisfied with the conclusion of the NBA Finals and the outcome? Yes, I am. I I wanted a ring for Chris Paul. I think this was his last chance. Um, but I have Giannis fever like the rest of the country, except maybe you. And I am very satisfied with the outcome. And I think it's great for, you know, middle market places like Milwaukee to have a championship. It's the first time in 50 years. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, very happy about the outcome. So there were some cool historical moments. And, yes, I'm a happy camper. And the fans got so into it, and they had, you know, 60,000 people outside the arena during Game 6. That's pretty cool. I watched the last—this is the extent of my NBA interest. I watched the last two minutes of Game 6. That's what I did. And I felt happy for Giannis. you saw what counted. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, and, and the streamers came down, and Giannis sat there and got emotional and then got up, and everyone's cheering, and that's all great. I'm just not a huge NBA fan at all, to put it mildly, right. but it's hard to root against someone 
like Giannis. I've seen some videos of him yeah. interacting with people in the community. Like this young girl had drawn some pictures mm-hmm. of him, and she waited in line to get an autograph, and then she showed him her portfolio of art of him, and he got up and came around the table to give her a hug, and it was just adorable. People have also been sharing some of his old tweets, but not in the way that we normally see of like, oh, this guy's canceled. Look at what he tweeted when he was, you know, a fetus or whatever. This was him experiencing things in America for the first time and loving the corn dog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm like, this guy is just completely charming. And obviously he's an incredible talent. I saw some people like, you know, calling him the goat. Come on. You can call him the MVP. Sure. Not the greatest of all time. He's, he's got a a long way to go there, but in terms of a young star who might be the antidote to the cynicism about NBA basketball that I have, he might, like, in some ways, he's the anti-LeBron. I know LeBron has some positive things that he does in his community, and that's all great. In terms of politics, at least so far, this guy just seems to be very grateful to be here, plays hard. I do want to ask you this, though, because this is, again, I don't know that much. You're much more informed than I am about this. Is there, for the casual NBA fan, or perhaps a fan of a, of, a, of a rival team who may not hate the Milwaukee Bucks, but they're bitter about the way the season ended, is there any talk about, not a real asterisk in the record books or anything like that, but sort of uh, a commonly held belief like, okay, happy for the Bucks, good for Giannis, but this was almost a process of elimination because Every other star in the game, basically, besides him and Paul, got hurt and, yeah. and couldn't, couldn't play in the playoffs. I mean, that clearly has an effect at some point about who can perhaps play over their head a little bit because the competition isn't quite what it would have been. Yeah, I think... I wouldn't go so far as an asterisk, and people were talking about this also with the bubble championship for the Lakers last year. You know, the conditions were so crazy. Ever, you know, people had COVID. Um, there were huge mental health um, issues going on there. Paul George, who's on the Clippers, was really outspoken about that. I think, though, that the truth of the matter is it's really hard to win an NBA championship no matter what. And the Bucks and the Suns remained the healthiest. That's absolutely true. Um, that's part of the game. That's also that's part of the game. This part of the game, any year, it's obviously it was extreme this year that ten of twelve superstars had something happen to them. Like that's never happened before. But it's it's also not the Bucks' fault. No, it, and there should be no apologies for that. I mean, part right. of that is, and I don't want to, you know, I'm obviously not an athlete at that level, but they kept themselves safe. They kept themselves in great condition. You know, they took care of themselves at a level where everyone could stay healthy. You know, it doesn't surprise right. me with someone like James Harden, who yo-yos his weight like 25 pounds up, 25 pounds down, let's say, is susceptible to a hamstring injury, let's say, versus someone who, like, sleeps in a cryogenic chamber. Now you have someone like <laughs> LeBron who does that, too, and still got injured, but he's 36 and Giannis is 26. So I think that it's agreed upon that the Nets, if they had been healthy, would have won it all. Like, no one disputes that, but it still doesn't diminish the title Wait, who, and Giannis's greatness. Who are they saying would have won it all if they were healthy? The Nets. So the Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving would just be unbeatable. 
for anybody, and oh. that's not controversial. Okay, I didn't even know that they were all on the same team, let alone the Nets. So this is the extent yeah. <laughs> of, of the interest that I pay. And you're a Nets fan, right? That's why you have me. Yes, I am a Nets fan. Well, I'm a big Kevin Durant fan and have been a long time. So when he came to New York, it was a huge, uh, a huge bonus for me. I just can't. Here's the problem. I don't have room in your intro to add NBA insider <laughs> to everything yeah. else and chief romance course. It's just too much, but just, just know that you unofficially had that role as well. So I appreciate your take on it. Uh, we're going to talk about this later in the show. Quickly, since we're on sports, are you going to be watching the Olympics? Are you super into Olympics? To me, it feels a little bit, I don't know, just less less excitement, less anticipation this time. Yeah, we were actually talking about it. I was on the five yesterday, and we were. Um, I was talking to Katie Pavlich, your friend and colleague um, here and at Town Hall. And there have unfortunately been so many sour stories, like Shakari Richardson, um, the Paralympian who the blind and deaf girl who isn't allowed to bring her mom, so she has yes. to pull out. There's Ridiculous. a swimmer who's breastfeeding and can't bring her baby. Yeah, it's like, insane. There are all these these things going on that really suck the joy out of it. Now I'm, I'm super pumped for Simone Biles. Like I will watch Simone Biles. I will watch the NBA uh, players, the, the USA basketball team, but no, I'm not into it. The opening ceremony was beautiful. The drone display that they did in the shape of the earth, but the joy is sucked out of this. And I think honestly, they should have pushed it back another year if they couldn't do it right. And people's teams, are so important for them to have. These are professional athletes. Um, and that, I don't know, that just really pissed me off. I mean, here's a thought. Push it a year. Have both the summer and winter games in the same year, which is what they used to do, yeah. 2022. Take the right. winter games away from communist China and move them to <laughs> Nagano. We know that they can handle them in Tokyo because they did it, what was it, 1998? That seems yeah. actually like a pretty elegant solution here that – Fixes a lot of things, but it is what it is, and they are underway, and we'll touch on that again later in the program. On our home stretch yesterday, our final segment of the show, Jesse, we had a dispute. Mm -hmm. I'm asking some of our guests today about it, and here was the, the nature of the dispute, and I put a poll up on Twitter, Guy P. Benson, if you want to go back and look for it. We had a little clip from the show that we shared as well on social I am headed after the show today to Idaho. It will be my 48th out of 50 states in cool. terms of the way that I count visits. Oh. And, and what is a thumbs up as qualifying and what does not qualify. So we had a big conversation about what qualifies in, in okay. each individual's mind. And we did have different definitions across the mm -hmm. team. And so I am wondering when you go through and think about whether you're tallying states, whether you're tallying countries, what are your rules? And I'm thinking about, for example, driving through. Does that count? Uh, layovers yeah. in airports. Does that count? How do you tabulate this stuff? So I, if I drove through, I, I know the place. I feel like I take in a lot, even states that I've driven through that it's like straight highway and like maybe a cracker barrel that still like has told me something about the state and I've at least had a conversation with somebody, even if it's in a rest stop, I'm a little less 
okay with layovers counting. Like if you didn't leave the airport, that's tough for me. But if you had one of those, you know, when people do that crazy stuff, they're like, I'm in Paris for eight hours, right? And I'm going to hop, hop on the train and I'm going to go into town and I'm going to get myself to the Louvre. And, you know, I don't have like a day or less rule, but the airport is a, a tough one for me. A tough one, but, but uh, you know, I tend to agree with you. You were physically there. You were physically there. My rule is you have to do something of significance while in the state. And that could even be just a meal. Like I, again, I could say yes, physically. Okay. So, so let me ask you, let's say you're the judge. Now you're, you're, you're judge Tarlov. Let me ask you about this. (laughs) By the way, God forbid, we do not need you on the bench, but for the purposes of this conversation, let me ask you this. So two years ago, and I shared this anecdote a few days ago when this first came up, I went on a trip with Secretary Pompeo to Europe. And on our way back from Europe, we were in Sochi, Russia, and we had to refuel in Shannon, Ireland. In Mm -hmm. Shannon, Ireland, we pulled up to the gate The refueling process took probably an hour, a little more. We were able to get off the plane. We went into the airport. It was very late at night, very, very late at night. But they had one bar that they had kept open specifically for us. So I went and I ordered from the Irish bartender Guinness. I had a non-Guinness as well, but I, I felt like I had to have some Guinness in Ireland just to do the thing. And I had a Guinness on Irish soil during this refueling. Have I been to Ireland, Judge Tarloff? Yeah, I think so. So that kind of yeah. undermines that kind of undermines I know. your point about layovers. But I like that I've now shifted to start framing this using your significance term. That it's something of significance. And my entire trip was significant, right? Like it's not every day that you get to travel oh, with yeah, state, exactly that is true one that i don't particularly love but it's still secretary of state so i'm gonna say yes but at the same time if you were like i threw back a beer you know in the cincinnati airport i might not be like you know anything of ohio so but you said going back to something else that you had said You'd mentioned even having a conversation with someone at a rest stop. So let's say you're driving driving, through. Right, but if you're driving through Iowa, you stop at a rest stop, you're pumping your gas, you casually say hello to someone when you go to the restroom or you're checking out because you got a bottle of water and the cashier comments on the weather or something, you get back in your car Mm -hmm. and drive out of Iowa. You're saying you have now, you have visited Iowa, you have been to Iowa, that counts? Well, my core component to why the drive-through a state was meaningful was the driving part more than necessarily the casual conversation that you might okay. have. That, that's, I think that so much of, seeing, of visiting a state is seeing it. And I say this as someone who, like, only later in life really saw a majority of her home state of New York. You know, I was like, well, yeah, I've been uptown. Like, I went north. Right. But then I was invited to a wedding um, in Buffalo. And I was like, oh, my God, 
this state is enormous, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> this is a country unto itself with a completely different uh, set of views, certainly uh, completely different lifestyles, et cetera. Culture. So it's a drive more than the casual conversation, I would say. That if you drove through a state, I think that you've, you've seen it and you've been there. Okay. I mean, I don't think that there's a perfectly right or wrong answer to this. So I'm, I'm sort of with you on a lot of the points that you're making. Off the top of your head, do you know how many states you've been to? Could you ballpark it? I don't. I know I counted at one point and had gotten to 30, but I don't know for sure. That was a while ago before, actually, I went to Iowa and New Hampshire for the primaries last year All right. uh, where we were together or two years ago. So I'm at least at 32. But I'd have to sit down and get to it. Okay. Well, that's perhaps your homework assignment. And okay. if, we have, if we have reason to get back to this discussion at some point, uh, we can do that. Plus, it's just a good thing for you to know because it gives you something to shoot yeah. for. You're way ahead of everyone else on the team here, by the way, including producer Christine. Being in your, in wow. your 30s of, you know, of the states already is, is pretty impressive. But 48 awaits, hopefully, if all goes according to plan tonight. I just got a note from the airline saying that my connection might be affected by thunderstorms. So that's fun. Uh, so pray for me. I hope this all works out. I, Jesse Tarloff. I hope you get to have a beer in Idaho. Well, it would be more than and a beer. Ted Lasso. Giving, giving oh, you're a, oh, I'm giving a speech. I'm doing all this stuff. So this will be a full oh, cool. Idaho counts visit. Unambiguous for sure. Jesse. Appreciate it. Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, chief romance correspondent, NBA insider, Jessica Tarloff, on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show, I saw this headline in the hill and I just had to shake my head. The headline is about a poll. Majority of Americans want history of racism, slavery taught in schools. Subheadline, Republican and Democratic respondents support teaching high school students about the implications of slavery and racism in the U.S. And this is framed as like a rebuttal to people who are concerned about critical race theory or want it banned. And it's a complete category error. And it's very lazy, and it actually plays into sort of the, the gaslighting and the deflection and the dishonesty that critical race theory or race obsessives are now trying to perpetrate. People are catching on to the poison that they're trying to inject or actively are injecting into schools, into curricula, and what they're trying to pretend is all of those people who have a problem with it, race essentialism, whatever you want to call it, they're just really against teaching history and slavery and racism. No. Those things are already taught in schools. They should be taught in schools. They're a part of our history and a shameful part of our history. Racism is still with us in a lot of ways. No serious person or conservative that I know of denies any of that. It's the toxicity of critical race theory as an umbrella term that is clearly separate and apart and different and worse than and more pernicious than 
traditional education about things like racism and slavery. So, of course, huge majorities of Americans are going to say, yes, teach these things in the school. So what? They already are. We agree on that. That's not the issue. It's, it's not something that people are debating right now. The debate is something very different. And it just frustrates me. And I think people who might actually support CRT, they know deep down it is unpopular. It's a loser. There's a Democratic poll that Josh Krasauer shared where critical race theory is 14 points underwater with a lot of people not knowing what it is. Those numbers would get worse, I would imagine. So this stuff could backfire which is why they're trying to pretend, oh, it's just about this other thing, teaching slavery or whatever. Nope, that's not it. That's a dishonest framing. The Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour, the happy hour, coming up next. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Friday on The Guy Benson Show from Indianapolis, Indiana for the third consecutive day. Happy Friday to all of you. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. You can get our free podcast should you miss any of the show as it airs. It's on demand for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. One of the ways, by the way, to listen live, in addition to our great affiliates, or the live stream, or Fox Nation, is through odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. And the happy hour, today and every day, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I keep hearing from you guys. You keep trying it. You keep loving it. No surprise, because it's delicious. Refreshing. Amazing. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Go to thelongdrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you. Their expanding map. TheLongDrink.com. You can also order online. Joining us now is Steve Hayes, Fox News contributor, editor, and CEO of The Dispatch. You can follow him on Twitter at Stephen, with a P-H, F, Hayes. And Steve, great to have you here. Hey, Guy. How are you? I'm doing well. We had Congressman Gallagher on earlier in the week as a Wisconsinite, I felt compelled to congratulate him on the Milwaukee Bucks, so I'll do the same with you. I'm not sure if you're a basketball guy. I'm not really, but it seemed like a very likable crew, and they deserved it. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I was a huge, huge Bucks fan till I was maybe 16 or 17, and then I've been more or less a bandwagon fan ever since. But it's, it's very easy to like a, a team that's helmed by Giannis, who's just a great great american great guy uh and easy to root for so what you're saying is you're back on the bandwagon at the moment i'm on the bandwagon yeah i'm, I'm trying to make, <laughs> move my way up to the front of the bandwagon exactly <laughs> could you dust off your old like jerseys or t-shirts from high school or yeah those perhaps a, you know a marcus johnson t-shirt maybe a terry <laughs> cummings jersey would be great <laughs> that's a throwback that's some vintage stuff there steve we're, we're both getting yeah. old i feel like because i even recognize no perhaps a few of those names. Uh, before we get on to other more serious matters, I've been asking all of the guests today about a controversy we had here on the show yesterday. We all argued about it. 
within the team. I tweeted about it. I put a poll out there on Twitter as well. I'm going later this evening to Idaho. It will be my 48th state out of 50. And we started talking about, okay, well, that's exciting, but how do you count states? Like, what qualifies for an official visit in this whole system? And people have very strong opinions about what does and, more importantly, what does not count. I have my opinion. Producer Christine and the rest of the team, we all shared our thoughts. When you tabulate the number of states that you've been to, Steve, and I'd imagine you're probably way up there at this point, uh, maybe even 50, what qualifies and what doesn't? I'm not at 50. I'm at 46, and I find it hilarious that you all have been having this debate with your show and on your staff because uh, I was in northern Wisconsin a week before this with a group of friends, and we had this debate, I think, for two hours around the campfire. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know so you have an answer. You have a strong take. Yeah, so, I, I mean, to me the question is, have you been in the state? And it's not much more complicated than that. So that includes uh, airplane uh, transfers. That includes stepping foot to get gas. That includes any time you've been in the state. Otherwise, you can't answer the question accurately. So if you've been in the state, you've been in the state. Now, you said setting foot to get gas. Does that suggest that if you remain in the car from border to border of a state, you are not in it? No, I would include that. Because you were actually physically in it. You don't need to plant your foot to be in the state. Okay, so you are taking the literal approach along with producer Christine. I think she is probably just tickled to death that you are in agreement (laughs) on this. I personally don't count it unless some sort of substantial event has taken place. And I do define that pretty broadly, like having a meal, for example, counts as an event in the state. So that's my definition. And then... One of our other team members, Wyatt, says, no, you've got to do something really significant or stay overnight. So I'm sure that there were people around the campfire arguing those positions. There is merit to it, but I think that as far as your logic, it is inarguable. Just purely physically speaking, it is the simplest, cleanest answer. So I, I'm not going to really give you a hard time about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess my question, the question I had for people who had your view was, what do you say if you've stopped and gotten gas as you've driven through a state and somebody says, have you been to yeah. Illinois? Um, if you say no, are you telling the truth? I think I'm telling the truth. I might sort of shrug and say not really. I just don't count That's, it as sort yeah. of if I'm if I'm trying to genuinely say that I have been to all 50 states, I don't want to just be someone who passed through very briefly and saw nothing, did nothing of note whatsoever. Right. That's, right. that's sort of as I tabulate it. Of course, technically speaking, based on your definition, Idaho will be my 49th state because I have driven through a tiny part of one state that's still on my list. I don't count that having visited there. In fact, I met someone from West Virginia last night. I mentioned this, and they said, no, you have not been to West Virginia. So they endorsed my definition. We will move on, Steve, because I I do want to get to actual politics and things that matter. But I'm glad that we're not the only ones having this conversation. And I got I mean, I was getting text messages from people 
folks have strong, strong <laughs> thoughts on this. And, and the same applies to countries as well. If you've traveled overseas, do layovers count, etc.? So let's yeah. jump overseas. Let's talk about something extremely serious, Steve, and that is Afghanistan and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think that there are a lot of Americans, I would wager to say most Americans, including many, many conservatives who may have held different positions in the past, who are basically of the opinion now that we've been there for so long, trying to nation build in a place and a culture like that is never going to work. And as painful as it might be, it's time to cut bait and get out of there, even if some bad stuff happens. I think that, what I just summarized, is what a lot of Americans are feeling. Now, there are others, of course, those who sacrificed and served there, some who lost loved ones there, who are extremely alarmed by this mentality, are horrified by some of the early signs and what's happening with the, the Taliban doing very predictable things, frankly. I know that you think about and study these issues very carefully, and I'm curious about where you are on this and what argument you would make to perhaps ambivalent Americans. Yeah, I think you've, I think you've accurately... Um, represented where most Americans are and probably most Republicans are at this point. I guess I would say that there is a, there's a middle ground between uh, a, a long-term commitment to nation-building in Afghanistan, which I think we've seen in 20 years tells us it's a very difficult undertaking on the one hand, and then cutting and running on the other, and essentially throwing up our hands. And if you read the reports coming out of Afghanistan um, the Long War Journal uh, is a great place for people to go and get details of that. Tom Jocelyn and Bill Roggio, who write that, Tom also writes for The Dispatch, our foreign policy newsletter. They have been talking about this, describing exactly what we're seeing for years. And you know, I think the argument that you would get from them and people who think like them is it's not necessary to stay a nation build. We don't have to, to make that kind of a commitment. But it will be foolish if we cut and run, sort of throw up our hands and say, hey, you know, to the victor go the spoils, because we know who's likely to win in that scenario. And it's not the good guys. It's the Taliban. And that, I think, to me, if you want to talk about both American security, national security here at home, uh, our interests abroad and, uh, and, and how our allies uh, view us in particular, the long term message it sends by cutting and running, I think has tremendous downside implications for us. And that's where we are right now. Some people might say, okay, I mean, yes, the Taliban very well might win. I see we're getting some of our interpreters and people who helped us out of there and giving them safe haven in America, obviously the right thing to do. But, and it might sound kind of callous, but I think some people would come back and say, okay, so what? So if the Taliban takes back over after 20 years of this and our presence there, so what? How does that justify staying any longer or costing one more life? What would be the response to that? Because I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think a lot of people are there. Well, I mean, we don't have to hypothesize about what could happen to the United States if we allow that kind of a, a nation-state safe haven for mm -hmm. jihadists, right? I mean, that's what we saw in the years before 9-11. Now, Literally. we certainly hardened. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was the Taliban. We've, we've hardened our uh, targets here on the homeland. So we're in a better position in that sense. But you also have the growth of the global jihad uh, in a way that I think is increasingly dangerous. So, you know, we've already seen reports of um, Syrian jihadists, people who have left 
Syria is seeking refuge in Afghanistan. I think we're likely to see more of those reports as the, the flow to Afghanistan grows. You had, this is back in the Obama administration, you had um, our, our, our top intelligence officials talking about Iran being a safe haven for um, al-Qaeda, for uh, the transport of weapons and goods and money to Afghanistan, strengthening Afghanistan uh, in the region. You have Pakistan that's been basically playing footsie with the Taliban um, for years. This is not an Afghanistan-only question, and there can't be an Afghanistan-only solution. And my concern is, even if you don't think we should be there nation-building, I think that's a fair argument to make after 20 years. What can we do with a smaller footprint, a much, much smaller footprint, you know, a few thousand troops potentially cycling in and out of Afghanistan to, to keep stability, to prevent the ascendance of the Taliban to power. Uh, I think you'd find a, a lot of people be more open to that argument when you look at it in terms of America's national security interests. Yeah. And I think also this is not necessarily a U.S. interests question, but it is a U.S. values question when the Taliban is going to do inevitably more of the horrible, horrific things that they do to women and girls and all that. I mean, that's also going to play out. And that may not be ultimately a determinative reason to stay, but it's also something just if you have a conscience that has to at least gnaw away a little bit as you think about these issues and how to do a drawdown, when, etc. Steve, I want to shift to domestic politics. We only have a little bit of time left, a few minutes. I've been sort of wrestling with this on the air. We had a senator on yesterday, Senator Marshall, from Kansas. And I'm sort of coming around to the position that even though I think that the bipartisan infrastructure framework, which isn't totally complete, but based on what we know, I think it's pretty good. I should say relatively good, given who's in charge and what the power dynamics are right now. I'm not opposed to it. However, when you look at what the Democrats are doing on Capitol Hill and at the White House, where they're essentially saying, especially Nancy Pelosi saying, we are only going to even consider the bipartisan spending if we get already $3.5 trillion of other insane left-wing spending on all sorts of goodies and cookies for the left that is just totally unsustainable in terms of the level of spending. The priorities, I think, are in many cases indefensible. They're basically saying you can't even get to the bipartisan thing without this huge partisan spending orgy going through. I'm sort of thinking, why on earth would the Republicans be a part of any piece of this? If that's what they're going to do and they want to push through more than $4 trillion of spending, let them do every single element of it on their own. The counterpoint that Senator Marshall made was, look, if we let them do that, it could be a lot worse. They could spend more. We would have no say in any of it. The final product or products would be almost certainly worse. The price tag could be higher. And if we do have something bipartisan that's passed, that could give ammo to the mansions and cinemas of the world to bring down the top line number on reconciliation and make it less bad. Where do you come down on that quickly? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I'm not unsympathetic to the, to the argument that Senator Marshall makes. Um, but as you point out, I mean, the, the, the kinds of spending that we're talking about in this so-called, quote-unquote, human infrastructure uh, bill is is absurd and irresponsible in the extreme right now when we're looking at $28 trillion of debt and, and no end in sight. I mean, no real solutions proposed for that. I think it's crazy to even contemplate adding 
that level of spending. Um, it's crazy to do it in any economy given that, that context, but it's especially crazy to do it in, in this economy. Um, I, I'm pretty sympathetic to the argument that Republicans ought to think seriously about just, just walking away altogether. I mean, Joe yeah. Biden had said, remember, he, remember his inaugural address, right? He said he felt unity in his soul. You look at the town hall he gave the other night, he kept talking about bipartisanship and unity. This is a guy who talks about it in public. He talks about it in these meetings that he's having with senators. He's well, it's how he won. He promised to do this stuff. And if he's going to let exactly. him and his administration and his party just get bulldozed, they'll do some window dressing bipartisanship that doesn't really mean anything when you look at the broader scheme of things. I think it's kind of a fraud. So I'm very sympathetic yep. to some of the arguments, as you say, but I'm still leaning slightly in the direction that you just articulated. Steve Hayes, we're up on a break. I just want to tell you, I'm going to hit 48. You're at 46, so you've got some catching up to do in terms of states, even if we may quibble about definitions of what counts. Steve Hayes is a Fox News contributor, editor and CEO of The Dispatch. Always appreciate it, Steve. Let's do it again. Anytime. Thanks, Guy. You bet. It's The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. We have set up a system which we feel is appropriate, has appropriate safeguards. Uh, we believe that Hunter Biden, just like any child of a president, should be able to pursue uh, their professions and their passions. And uh, any uh, selling of the art would be uh, through the gallerist. Back on the Guy Benson Show, happy hour. That was Jen Psaki, circle back, trying to spin this thing on Hunter Biden's art, which I guess is now his profession. Ooh. He's a professional artiste, and they're trying to sell his work for up to 500 grand a pop. And obviously, you have ethics people saying, actually, this seems rather suspicious. Because who in their right mind, honestly, would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on art from Hunter Biden just because they like the art? And not because they want access to his father, the most powerful person in the world. And if you can't really trace this or keep track of what's going on and what the motives are and what any quid pro quo might be, isn't that an ethical worry? But Circleback says, nope, it's fine. They've got their system, and Hunter Biden should be able to pursue his profession. Except it's all going to be secretive, right, with names that will not be made public. So that's rather sketchy. What the White House had previously said was Hunter Biden wasn't going to even know who these people are, wasn't going to meet with them. It would be totally blind in all directions, right? So that would potentially or possibly foreclose the possibility of influence peddling or trying to buy access to the White House. But now it looks like Hunter Biden, as it turns out, is going to go and meet with prospective buyers of his artwork for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Surprise, surprise. They say, well, he won't exactly know exactly who bought what. What an absolute joke. This thing just stinks of a grift. And after all the talk about Trump and the Trump family and the Trump brand, I wonder if the usual suspects who were very upset about all of that and the president's children in the last administration, are they going to be raising red flags on this, especially given Hunter's background and some of the other shady dealings he's been involved with, I won't hold my breath. But this is extremely weak spin from the White House. And obviously, this reeks. It's The Guy Benson Show.
GuyBensonShow.com. Friday edition of the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour today, our 3 p.m. Eastern hour, Jimmy Fallon, our Fox News Radio colleague, stopped by. Always fun talking with Jimmy, including today. Here's part of that conversation. Now, to get to Austin, I'm, I'm, I've got a few flights ahead of me tonight. I've got another flight late next week. I did notice, Jimmy, got a few minutes left here. You have a new column out, oh, yeah. foxnews.com, that actually gives a little some rules of the road, although I guess rules of the skies, mm-hmm. from your perspective about how to have a successful air travel experience in an era of a lot of unruly passengers. There's been a huge uptick mm-hmm. in unruly passenger incidents, and you're offering some tips and some advice on how to avoid that whole mess. Do you want to maybe highlight one or two that you think I really need to internalize and embrace? <laughs> uh, well, let me ask you this. Are you an overhead storage bin hog? Because that's something I wrote about extensively, is nobody monitors the overhead storage rule of you know one carry-on, one personal item. And in my flight to L.A. last week and this Frontier Airlines video that's gone viral, everyone's fighting over the bins because what happens is what? You board 10 rows of the plane, but somehow 21 rows of the luggage bins are full. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you that guy? Well, I'm a 1K on United, so I do board first. So I, I just have the luxury of as much as much space as I could possibly use. This is my game plan. Uh-huh. So I actually technically have three pieces. Mm-hmm. I have my luggage that goes in the overhead bin. Mm-hmm. I've got my computer bag. It goes in the seat in front of me. Mm-hmm. And then I have a garment bag that I hang in the little flight attendant closet. That's... Mm-hmm. That's my setup, and I think that's completely legit. Well, for me, obviously, Fox makes me fly stowaway. So I do have the room if I can hold on to it while I'm gripping the tire of the plane. Uh, it's just it's, – it's, it's very – it can be logistically challenging at certain altitudes, and, and, of course, the cold is a problem. But, no, in general, you seem like you're within your, within your rights then, uh, and you that's don't – It's a single bag. It's yeah. a single bag up there. No, that's, that's respectable. The, the, okay. biggest, the biggest causes of confrontation on planes, though, storage, maybe it's not specific to your experience. It doesn't sound like it's that egregious. Um, but otherwise, like looking around the plane, it has – a lot of it just has to do with the fact that by the time – time everyone gets on the plane we've all become like michael douglas in the movie falling down everybody's already on the verge of snapping before they get there and this is something i was talking about with harris faulkner the other day that didn't really fit into the column that everyone should read it's at foxnews.com and remember this if you like reading at a third grade level you really will love all of my columns but the conversation harris and i were having is about they need to generous they (laughs) good for you they (laughs) they need to they need to bring back alcohol sales on planes and my theory being guy is that it used to be people got onto the planes, they drank, and by the time you arrived at the destination, you had some drunk people. But now, because alcohol is banned, everyone pregames like they're going into a college football stadium, <laughs> and they're, they're fourth quarter drunk before the national right. anthem gets sung. It's prom. Yeah. It's prom without a DJ it's, it's, in, a, in a flying metal tube. That's a lot less exciting. Yes, and make, but, but they're not dressed for prom, okay? They're, they're no, trimming they're, their toenails. And, they, and they've got masks. You've yeah. got masks on, too. That's another fun thing. Thank you. Well, hopefully this ends with you wearing handcuffs for my own selfish indulgence. I want so you to be a masked vigilante for me, guy. <laughs> so Okay, so you've got the overhead bin rule. You've got uh, the, the, the booze idea, which wasn't in the column, but I actually fully support that. Uh, anything else? Well, like, if you're how, do you, how do you deal with these irritable, angry people? 
Well, you have to understand they're not mad at you. They're mad at life. Like they're mad at circumstance. (laughs) (laughs) It's like when I used to like drive a taxi, people would jump into my cab and just annihilate me before they had even given me a destination. And I was like, oh, this clearly has nothing to do with me. I understand. Like somebody's coming from a bad interaction with a boss. This is a weird projection. And that's a lot of what's happening on planes, too, is circumstance has just broken people's spirits. Because when you fly commercial, man, it really is like a thinly veiled way of going to the dominatrix. My full interview with Jimmy Fela of Fox News Radio. His show airs on many stations right before mine, available on the podcast on demand for free. That podcast is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, anywhere you download your podcasts. Don't forget about Bonus Benson on the weekends. When we come back, the home stretch. A very funny thing that happened to me last night here in Indianapolis, and also a little team talk about the Olympics opening ceremonies this evening. We'll get to that straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday. We're almost there. Almost to the weekend. Thank you very much for listening. So, as I've mentioned repeatedly these last few days, I've been doing the show from Indianapolis, Indiana. And yesterday I spoke... It was like a armchair conversation, Young Republicans event, some Q&A, very fun. And on stage, I was wearing sort of my typical uniform, if you will, for these types of things. Button-down shirt, sport coat, jeans, and like comfortable but somewhat nice shoes. Right, So kind of looking fairly official. Didn't wear a tie, but other than that, sort of the look that I would have on TV. So last night, one of the activities at this convention was everyone was given a free ticket to the minor league baseball game. And the stadium is right next to the hotel. Indianapolis has two pro teams, right, the Colts from the NFL, Pacers from the NBA. And then for baseball, they have a triple-A affiliate I believe, of the Pittsburgh Pirates. But they are the Indianapolis Indians. So I wonder if that name's going to have to go. Because now the Cleveland Indians, as we mentioned earlier, have changed their name to the Guardians. Anyway, they're still the Indians here in Indianapolis. And actually, that makes me wonder, does Indianapolis need to change the name? Indiana itself. You've got the offensive word supposedly right in there. got to rename everything. We'll get the wokes on that. Anyway, it's a very nice little stadium. I looked it up. The capacity is roughly 12,000. It's beautiful. And it was a pleasant evening out, and I was dressed down. Because after the show, I went to the gym. I put on a T-shirt. I put on a baseball cap. And then I went over and was mingling and chatting with people. It was great to meet so many of these younger conservatives from around the country. And so at one point, I was chatting with this guy, and we were just talking about the event and the conference, and he was having a beer, I was having a beer, and he said, were you at that Guy Benson thing earlier? And I said, I was. And I said, what did you think of it? He said, oh, I really liked it. I said, I'm very glad to hear you say that. And he kind of looked at me, he was confused, and I said, I'm him. (laughs) 
and he was so embarrassed. And I'm not trying to make fun of him, because in all fairness, I was looking completely different. Like, a lot of people who aren't friends with me, they know what I look like on TV with, you know, the hair combed and the tie on and the jacket. And then here I am in a complete different context with a beer in my hand, a T-shirt, a baseball cap. It just, one can be forgiven. And he was so apologetic. He's like, oh my gosh, of course it's you. It just didn't occur to me. Just the context. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, no, it's totally, totally fine. I'm just glad that you gave me your candid answer and that you enjoyed it. <laughs> but that was funny. I wasn't really sure what to say. Were you at the Guy Benson thing? Sure was. Sure was. Anyway, appreciate the invite. It's been uh, fun being out here. And as I've been talking about, very excited to head to Idaho later this evening. Something else that's kicking off this evening, the Olympic Games. Delayed a year because of COVID. It's games in Tokyo. I saw some protests, actually. Pretty big protests in the streets. A lot of Japanese people are not excited that these games are happening in Tokyo. Polling has showed that the overwhelming majority of people aren't into it in Japan. I think the number I saw is over 70% saying we shouldn't do this. Toyota yanked its ads off the air in Japan because they didn't want to be associated with that audience, with that market, and attaching their brand to the Olympics, which is, I think, pretty shocking for a company of that size and that prominence. Nevertheless, the opening ceremony airing this evening, and I'm sort of an Olympics person, right? There are certain sports that I especially enjoy watching. Ice hockey. I'm a winter Olympics guy. Like, I've never been to an Olympics. If I'm going to go one day, which is a bucket list item, I want to go to a winter Olympics because I think the hockey is what I'm most interested in. But I also find some of the figure skating to be very impressive, I'm just more intrigued by the winter sports overall. But I'm not opposed to watching the summer games, root for Team USA and all that. It just it doesn't quite feel as exciting or as anticipated this time because there's going to be no fans, uh, virtually no fans in the stands. So the spectators and that whole component goes away. I'm interested to see how they do the opening ceremony. And I think it's already done. Am I wrong about that? I think based on the time change, this is just like a a huge tape delay. So I can probably find spoilers, like what they've actually done, because they can't have large crowds of people, even though there are large crowds of people gathering to protest the Olympics. So, you know, there you go. It just, the excitement, the buildup, it doesn't feel the same this go-around. And I don't think it will feel the same next go-around either, because that's going to be Beijing. And I'm going to have huge problems doing anything to support the Games and Olympics. To support the Olympic Games in communist China after everything that's gone down. We've occasionally touched on that. So I think it's unfortunate. Maybe I'm alone. Maybe people are out of their minds excited and I just haven't picked up on it or I haven't felt it. That's just my perception. I do find opening ceremonies much more interesting than closing I never watch the closing ceremony. It's just so anticlimactic. The competition's over. We know the medal counts. It's like, time to go home. It's not like a big closing party that we can actually enjoy and go have a drink. It seems superfluous. I know it's a tradition. 
Christine, am I wrong about this? This whole build up to the Olympics and it just not really feeling it this time? I 100% agree with you. I, I'm sure you feel the same way. Growing up, these two weeks were just, you know, so amazing. Like, I was glued to the TV with my family every night watching different sports, especially gymnastics. I mean, I just loved watching the gymnasts. I just don't have that feeling this year. I don't know if it's because of the pandemic or what, but... I'm just, you know, if we watch it, we watch it, but it's not going to be appointment television for me. Yeah, I think that that's a good way of putting it. I did see that one of our colleagues, Pat Ward, who's a producer at Fox, he's got a very funny Twitter feed. He's Peter Ducey's producer. And he posed the question the other day, what is not an Olympic sport that should be? Because there are some sports, let's be honest, in both the summer and winter games, where I'm like, how on earth is this even a thing in the Olympics? Like, there are gymnastics and figure skating events that take a lot of the skill out, where you're just basically dancing. I don't get that. I always enjoyed Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up bit about the luge in the Winter Olympics. And he said, you know, you just, it's a human being flying down this, this ice track, basically. He said, could someone who didn't even want to do the luge succeed at it? He called it the involuntary luge as a new Olympic sport. He's like, oh, you know, the people who are actually in that event, he's like, oh, they, they point their toes. What a tremendous athlete. So why don't you just grab a guy off the street? Hey, wait a minute. What do you and just throw him down the luge? Bang. World record. That was the punchline from Jerry Seinfeld. I was thinking about the question, though, from Pat Ward. I think if we're talking about a real bona fide sport and a very entertaining sport that is not included yet in the Olympics, although I saw some decision made by the IOC that put it closer to possibly qualifying as an Olympic sport in the future, but lacrosse came to mind. Men's and women's lacrosse, great, great game, high intensity, a lot of skill. Part of the question might be, are there enough lacrosse-relevant countries to really have competition? Or would it just be America crushing anyone else who tried to field a lacrosse team? I don't know. I think there's lacrosse in Canada, but you would need some critical mass of countries for lacrosse to really qualify and be interesting. But it's a great sport. That was my answer. I don't know if you've got one, Christine. What about motorsports? How come motorsports are not part of the Olympics? Like race car driving or some sort of motorcycle, you know, race. How come we've never done that? I'm going to make people angry with this, but... I don't, don't really consider them sports. <gasps> oh, he didn't mean that, folks. He didn't mean I that. I mean, I, I can understand why people would be into it. I'm not saying it doesn't take skill. I'm not saying there's no excitement. But you're using motorized vehicles to go around. It's not like a, a human sport, which I feel like is what the Olympics are about. That's, that's my take. That might be a scalding hot take. I don't know. I bet you a lot of you agree with me on that point. But others were gasping. 
gasping and angrily turning off their radio. You can always send me a very kind note about this. You can send me a tweet, at Guy P. Benson, a direct message on Instagram, also, at Guy P. Benson, if you're a big NASCAR person or whatever. Motocross, is that the name of the, I don't even, of the, quote, sport? Will you watch the opening ceremony tonight, Christine, when it re-airs? I will. We will watch tonight. Uh, I have no plans. So, uh, little Mama's Juice, little Olympics. I would like Megan to watch the opening ceremonies. Because this would be really the first Olympics that she could, you know, we could talk to Remember. her about. And she would understand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, th- yeah. I, think that's, I think that's fair. And I have very early memories of watching Olympics. I remember watching some of the 1992 Olympics. I was seven, mm-hmm. so I was roughly her age. We were in France, actually, at the time. The games, if I'm not mistaken, were in Barcelona that summer. Yes. And we would watch on, we had this rented house with some friends, my parents' friends, and we would watch the Olympics. And that's something that still sticks with me many years later. Oh, my gosh, almost 30 years later. That is scary. Well, don't forget the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. Atlanta, I mean, yep, that- then- that gymnastics dream team, you know, they were everything to someone of my age back then. So, you know, oh, I loved watching it. Loved it. Yeah, no, I, I watch bits and pieces of every Olympics. I'm sure I will do it again this year. I'm not anti-Olympics by any stretch of the imagination. Go Team USA and all of it. I want to hear the U.S. anthem as often as possible. Go and win, Team USA. It's just like the anticipation is a little off, but a lot of things are a little off these days. With COVID, it's just, it's a strange time. You can't put your finger exactly on it, but we all know it's all just there. What is not off is that it's the weekend. The weekend has arrived. Have a really nice, relaxing weekend. I'm excited for my trip. I'll report back about Idaho on Monday. We'll be back here with a brand new show. Until then, have a great night, USA. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.